All right, here on the Fox Takes podcast with Joey Doty. How do you how do you even pronounce your last name? Doughty. You did well. Ninety percent of people put an R in it, and I'm not sure where they find the R. I think they're finding it between the T and the Y, like Daughtry, the musician. Is that <laughs> yep. how that's going? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, phantom letters are a big thing. Actually, people talk about um, that whenever I like learn somebody's new name and it's a, like a non-traditional meaning, like not Smith or Jones or yeah. something. They're like, oh, well, somebody probably uh, put a different letter in it. They're like at least you didn't add this or that because somehow I get called this lot. It's funny. I don't think people read all the way through sometimes if they see a new last name, their mental schema just yeah. fills in the blank, which we can get into schema theory. So anyway, so you have uh, a new name coming up. You were Improvement Geek. So let's talk about that new name. Introduce it. Yeah. So my new name, it just went live this morning. I am now Cypreneur and I am the psychology performance coach for entrepreneurs and freelancers. Nice. Okay. So that is, and, and I, that's awesome. This is a really good coincidental release here. It's funny how the synchronicity lines up. It's kind of like your, your first appearance with that new name. So that's awesome. So let's go back a little bit. Anyone who at all has seen you on Twitter will have seen your pinned tweet um, about your story. But let's get a little more depth about that. Tell me, tell the listeners what started you down this path of self-development and what was going on when you were kind of at a point where you thought something had to change. So the moment that I realized something had to change was when I was about 18 years old and I was over 370 pounds. I mean, I stopped weighing myself at that point. I just found out that I had hypogonadism, which is extremely low testosterone due to my weight. And I was also pre-diabetic. And we were living in Florida at the time. And I would try to go exercise. I would try to, we lived right near a park. And just going and walking to the park killed me. Mm. Not literally, thankfully. But I felt right. like that may be coming down the line. So I realized that I needed to do something. So I... My mom and I actually moved to Tennessee not long after that. I got a job working construction. So that got, got me out of the house and away from World of Warcraft that I was addicted to. And, you know, just by being outside and being away from food and, you know, moving, I lost a lot of weight really quickly. But I didn't know enough to develop better habits. So right. for the next few years, I rode a roller coaster with my weight going up and down and trying different things and then I started college and every winter I would regain a bunch of weight, like 20 pounds every final season. And it was a mess. So over the next few years from, you know, 2016 to 2018, I started consistently dropping my weight. I got from like 290 to 260, 260 to 240, but I kept like hitting a wall. So I started reading self-help books for the first time and I didn't really expect much. You know, there's a lot of stigma around the self-help industry and the first book that i read was maximum achievement by brian tracy i listened mm. to the audiobook of that while walking around centennial park in nashville it blew me away it was absolutely incredible that moment changed my life so i kind of got addicted as some people do to self-help books you know i'm a very i i consume books you know i read over 50 books last year 
which isn't always something to be, to be proud of, but that's another story. But I started reading a lot of self-help books. And as I know that you know, as a, another person of psychology, there's a lot of cliches and crap. There's also a lot of ineffective, but more upsettingly harmful information. I'm really tired of all that. So I started actually studying the psychology and the neuroscience to understand how my mind worked so that I could figure out how to actually improve my life. So I did that for about six months and then it suddenly hit me one day that I could start using the knowledge that I had to help other people. You know, a lot of other people, first off, they don't have the awareness. You know, a lot of people think that they choose everything that they do. They think that they're bad people, like they're broken people and that they just make bad decisions. So they don't even know some of the stuff that's happening, but then they also maybe don't have the means to get help or don't have the time to read all these books. They may not be able to process that kind of information. So from, from that idea in May of last year, on May the 4th, because I'm that kind of guy, Improving Geek was born. Improving Geek was, you know, I, I'm a geek in a lot of ways and you know, I was all about improvement. So I created a YouTube channel and I was making weekly videos about scientific self-improvement. Mm -hmm. I used to be a very boring, quiet guy. So my videos were kind of boring and quiet, like science lectures. So YouTube didn't work out too well for me back then. And then in January of this, of 2020, I started on Twitter and started taking my Twitter account seriously. On January 30th, I had 300 followers and I should hit 13,000 in just a few minutes. There you go. We are. What do you attribute the major growth to? Networking, communication, being, yeah. being willing to approach people, talk to people, get into conversations and actually add value and get to know people. Yeah, I think that's pretty crucial. Um, there's a whole community on there for people to network and get to know on a professional level. And it's mm -hmm. fascinating because people can get sucked into this emotion trap on Twitter where they spend their time arguing the finer points of their uh, views on things. And that time could be better spent building a tribe of people for accountability, for promotion of one another, for just an enhancement of life rather than destruction but it's like social media multiplies your social kind of proclivities and habits where it either goes far down the rabbit hole of fighting or down the rabbit hole of social intelligence i've noticed yep. yeah exactly i was telling someone yesterday that you know i see on reddit all the time because reddit's still one of my guilty pleasures people hating on twitter and talking about how hateful and bitter and vile it is and every time i see that i just think you're not using twitter right you know, you have the power, you have more power on Twitter to curate your feed and control your inputs than maybe any other social media platform. So frankly, if your Twitter experience is bad, that's kind of on you. That's, that's an opportunity where you can improve that. Start muting. I mean, that's what you yep. sometimes have to do. Yep, uh, exactly. I've experienced that myself. So awesome. Um, what do you, so this is a good kind of leaping off point here. So as a therapist myself, I end up doing a lot of, I almost do just as much coaching and psychoeducation on what doesn't work mm -hmm. and the pool, the kind of self-help predatory stuff as I do discussion of what does, because I have to kind of deprogram and reprogram people's right. expectations. I'm sure you're, you're kind of familiar with that. 
with your own coaching of, of clients or even speaking on Twitter to the masses. But what do you think is one of the most harmful things out there messaging wise about mental health or performance? I mean, there's so much to choose from, but I thought I'd ask you that. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give you two answers to that question. So number sweet. one, short and sweet, is the whole, the hustle culture. <laughs> it, yeah, oh. I mean, that's very common in money Twitter. It, people may not be familiar with that term, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a very bad mentality. I think it's hugely popular, popularized by Gary Vaynerchuk, unfortunately. And it's just the attitude of hustle every day, hustle 25 hours a day, eight days right. a week. And people burn themselves out. And uh-huh. in entrepreneurship, in business, in life, you got to play the long game. And that's the only way you're going to win. Uh, you got to take care of yourself. You can't trade your health for wealth, as I like to say, because that's that sounds cool. Um, so that's one. And then the other that I've been working to break down lately is fear of vulnerability. So this is very common with younger guys but especially some of the, the manly men in the manosphere on Twitter and you know the red pillars and all that good stuff, they're afraid of being authentic and transparent and being vulnerable because they think that they have to put up this front all the time about you know they have everything figured out and they're secure and they're happy and they're strong. And they're almost pandering to their audience as well. When in reality, I found, you know, with my story, with my pin tweet, as you said, I used to be morbidly obese. And, you know, I've talked about my issues with anxiety, panic attacks, regaining weight when my business got going, self-doubt from social media and all that stuff. And that really resonates with people. So not only did it make me feel better to share that kind of thing and to be honest with my, my community, but it also shows people it's relatable to people you know it humanizes you as a creator but it's also relatable to your audience because they see hey i'm not the only person that deals with these kind of things and then that can help start these conversations where other people feel okay with discussing it and as a therapist you know full well that when you discuss something that really helps you process it so getting back to the original point The problem is is that people aren't talking about these things. We're not having these conversations, but that's not just hurting the person with the problem. You know, this manosphere guy that thinks that he is perfect because he knows that he's not, but it's also hurting the community because the people that are looking up to these creators feel like they shouldn't be vulnerable either. So ultimately that feeds into the stigma around never talking about anything that's bothering you or any, any struggles that you're having. And You know, I've seen people, I've seen a weird trend lately where people are acting like anxiety is a weakness or anxiety doesn't exist. And as someone who's had a lot of anxiety myself and panic attacks, it's really frustrating to see. Wow. What a, what a great rabbit hole to go down. Um, The, just the complete dismissal of mental health concerns is very interesting. So I have to play devil's advocate here because I think there's a lot out there that people are rightfully, their bullshit detector goes off on. Mm -hmm. So the sort of um, self-care culture uh, is a bit of a cottage industry now. Um, and, And it dovetails very well with consumerism in many ways. And so it's this idea that 
you know, the customer is always right. The client is always right. Tell people what they want to hear and charge for it. So I think that's where some of this over-reliance on everything being a call for hours of self-care versus uh, going into it and braving the new challenge in a, in a way that's responsible, right? In a systematic desensitization way versus flooding yourself. Yeah. Okay. I think it's easy to go one way with that where it's never do anything new, wrap yourself in bubble wrap, which is irresponsible. And it's people that want to be liked, whether they're therapists or coaches, just telling people stuff like that because it would it's challenging to challenge people. And then we have the other extreme, which is any anxiety or emotion is a complete and utter failing on your part and you should eat nails for breakfast. And so I see these dichotomies and it's human nature to be to one extreme or the other right. in many right. cases. And so the nuance of yes and yes, new experiences can be frightening and we should find ones that are meaningful to us and brave that and either with the therapist, a coach, self-help books, whatever, we should be able to meet that challenge. It's very difficult to be in between. And right. so I've noticed the same thing you're talking about. You know, hustle Twitter is essentially a secular version of the prosperity gospel for all intents and purposes, which you could say the prosperity gospel is a very secularized kind of theology where it's, I mean, it's as old as time, potentially this idea that if you keep doing something, you're going to make it rich. And if you don't, it's because you didn't try hard enough. It hooks right. into people with high neurosis, high neuroticism on the big five sort of personality thing. There's a, there's a lot to go into there, but I won't, I won't spend our interview doing it, but people should really notice when they're getting their hook, when, when something is getting their hooks synced in, like what of your insecurities is being activated by those sort of offers by those things of, Oh, if you click this, your problems will be solved forever with this $30 gum road course. Yep. Likely it won't, but then you'll wonder if you did it right. And so that's mm -hmm. very predatory. So I like that you're calling that out. I mean, it's difficult to do it because there, there's such a, people sometimes don't make it easy on Twitter where those short answers, those very pat answers can pick up traction and people can think that they're viable when they're not. So yeah, absolutely. I'm, I know I'm preaching in the choir there. It's like, if you wouldn't let this person, people don't view their, I, I'm sure you've noticed this. Sometimes people don't view their brains as impressionable as they are. You have mm -hmm. to really guard yourself. Like you, like you said about Twitter, you have to curate your Twitter uh, feed because that negativity, you, you will absorb that. And all you have to do is hit that mute button or unfollow or block or whatever is helpful. But like that accumulates those negative in, in sort of experiences and it snowballs. And I think people have an artificial idea. Like they, they think they they have a higher level of, resilience than anyone does like anyone's going to be subject to internalizing what they see day in and day out yeah so a parallel to that is the news media so if you spend hours every day watching the news then you're going to think that the world's on fire because they the people behind the media have engineered the news to prey on our brains you know our brains did not evolve for this world and there are very smart people that are taking advantage of that. That sounds very tinfoil hat and conspiracy theory, but it's true. So they just talk about all the negative in the world to keep you addicted. And if you just watch the news every single day, you'd think that the world's a terrible negative place and you'd be afraid to leave your house. There's a parallel back to 
some of these content creators, some of these influencers who are actually wind, wind up being influenced by their audience because they find out that the more extreme and polarizing, you know, one, one way of center than the other content gets them more attention. And so over time, that's all that they post is the stuff that gets them more attention because Precisely. they see that, oh, this, this resonated and this gave value or, you know, it's, it gave them more dopamine at a base level, just gave them more dopamine. So the brain told them, hey, this tweet about how anxiety isn't real work, so I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna say something more extreme. And this is, yeah. No, I, no, that's an absolutely beautiful point. And I think people need to realize that's not tinfoil hat talk. When you say that, I'm not shocked at all. And I'll okay. explain why. So, and you've, and you've mentioned this in your tweets, in fact, the idea that our brain is a problem solving machine it looks for problems and solves them. And so the media gives your brain a problem. And it's also about copywriting and about, I mean, this dovetails also with the sort of things people are marketing on Twitter. Okay. So a lot of the courses people are marketing use scarcity and use sort of, I mean, I mean, don't take my word for it. Anyone out there who's listening, who wants to sort of make their brain unhackable needs to read uh, the book Influence by Robert, Robert Gildini. Yes. Or they need to also read Presuasion, his newer book, which I, the, I, it's amazing the studies that show what the preconditions for persuasion are. So anyway, but that stuff is pretty well documented that social proof and scarcity very much influence people's uh, behavior. I mean, it's the toilet paper shortage due to COVID, the all the stuff, I mean, you can just look at this stuff. It's not just common sense. It's, it's verifiable. And so like, the brain responding to negativity and like the, the activation of the fear center, the amygdala being something that really imprints and codes a memory stronger is pretty well documented. And so we have to look at the applicability, the application of that and how that's being used. And the cycle of people watch it more because it's scary. The producers of the news make more of it because it's watched. People watch it more. There's, there's a very sort of vicious positive feedback loop there of, of a positive acceleration, meaning additive. And so if people dissect that and think for a minute, am I watching something that's fully objective or am I watching something that has a motive? Now, spoiler, 99% of the time it's going to have a motive because you want to get views. And right. so I think it's interesting that you're discussing this sort of polarization effect where content creators who are new and green and doing something they're passionate about might kind of be integrated into the machine here by chasing views and, and following stuff that's very bombastic and sensationalistic. I've seen it myself, happens on Twitter all the time. And there's a, yeah, there's a tendency for things that are very shocking to get retweets. And so of course it makes sense, but for your, your, your career lifetime, over your lifetime, that's probably a bad look. I think people, I mean, there's no telling how many thousands or millions of, of content creators go down this rabbit hole that's ultimately going to be bad for them image wise. And I mean, just like for their own good, not for their soul even, but for their career, but just do it because in the moment it's something, I mean, I can't judge too much because I mean, imagine being a teenager who has access to the internet, a place where you can destroy your life or be a star. Like that's a, that's a Faustian bargain there. So. Yeah, I completely agree. I would just advise any content creator, no matter where they are in the journey, whether they're just starting out or whether they have been doing this for years, keep in mind why you're doing it. 
you know, try, try to find the balance between creating content to get you more followers and like to grow your following and creating content to grow your followers, like grow the people. And lately I've shifted my content right away from like, Oh, this sounds really cool. And it's going to get a lot of engagement to, I'm going to speak to my community because at this point, I don't care about how many followers I have. I care about how many students I have. I care about how many lives I'm affecting. And that's ultimately the reason why I do what I do. I don't really use social media for personal reasons. So right. if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't be on social media at all. Like I'm all about creating a positive legacy and creating, right. um, like making people better. So I mean, I know it's a balance. Like you do have to have some content that's going to get you more attention. But like I said, you also have to remain true to your mission. Like, what, do you, what are you doing? Are you doing this just to get attention? Or are you doing this to actually do some good in the world? Yeah, that's a huge point. And I think people miss that. And I mean, that's something that people charge hundreds of dollars in these courses to hear, to, to share rather, the idea of kind of a unified mission and what um, what you're looking to, to, to do on Twitter, the, the unified branding approach. And I mean, again, not to take something that's very serious and, and sacred here, like a life's mission, turn into something very, um, you know, quaint and, and easily marketed or, you know, kind of bombastic and, and a, a point for sales here. But it's very important people to realize that, that if you have a consistent message, you're likely to pick up more traction if you're looking for, for growth online. And it, I mean, the, the thing is, what's so great about that is it coincides so well with altruism and people's genuine desire to help because you're probably going to have a particular population that you care about. For me, I've tweeted a lot about men's health and how, I mean, I remember going to this psychology conference in 2018 and one of the the speaker the the woman who founded the man therapy project in colorado where there's an actor who plays a therapist and he talks about like men loving bacon and men having emotions not just hippies it's very funny and it's very memorable and she created it because her brother sadly took his own life when he was having a bipolar uh depressive episode and she realized that men need different interventions often humor mentorship the ability to give back the avoidance of pity mm-hmm. when when the, the all of these things came into play and so she created this mission that was very targeted it was very effective actually and it involved like online um surveys and things where you don't even have to go in and talk immediately and it kind of you know, it gently guided men toward therapy rather than hitting them with, you need to get fixed. It's like, ah, what a novel idea. I mean, and so for you, it seems like your, your trajectory has really been putting stuff in terms that is like verifiable. It's funny because I would often with clients do the same thing, like link to a paper or say, well, here's why this is something that works. And here's why it's something that doesn't like dwelling on whatever you're upset about doesn't actually help that much it can be counterproductive because you're you're thinking about it and your brain considers it even more important than it did before so that's a common misconception venting is good to dignify your emotions but after a point it becomes overkill so that's a common thing people don't get is that's because their model 
is this idea of like catharting things out. It's very funny how the metaphors go. It's like, you think you're getting it out. It's like, no, you're actually priming it more within your brain. So that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. But um, I think it's very important what you hit on about the hypocrisy of the kind of, I don't even know. So the term red pill doesn't mean really anything anymore because the people have turned everything into a red pill, like the red pill on the carnivore lifestyle, you know, on soy, on this and that. And it's like, okay, so that term started with the matrix, meaning your pill that introduces you to reality. Then it was used by and large by the male, the men's rights community. And now it just, it's just everything. It's gone back into the general usage really. Yep. And so it's like, well, what does that mean? What is that? And then there's like clear appeals. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of a, a, a misnomer because that doesn't even mean you're just trying to use a metaphor that's already been used and add on to it. Just create your own. So yeah. anyway, yeah, the, the thing is you can't trust faceless profiles on Twitter to direct your life. They're directing their stuff based on what gets retweets. They have no obligation to help you. And it's just so saddening that, and you, you nailed something earlier when you said people need better mental health or might not be willing to go in and talk about that stuff, or there's taboos about that. Yeah. And that keeps people from knowing who's out to help them versus who's out for their money. Right. You're not getting a disclosure form that has the qualifications of like, there some someone and like a, a guarantee that they won't screw you over from Moneybags420 on Twitter, who has a picture of a dollar sign as their is their avatar. But that offers confidentiality. People may be more willing to chat about stuff on Twitter with someone than go into a therapist's office because of the taboo. And I think that's another thing that we really have to get get real about because some therapists don't make it easy. You don't want to go in, everybody doesn't want live, laugh, love therapy. And everyone doesn't want that. And it's like, well, men need to just do better at opening up. And it's like, but we have to meet people where they are, right? I'd I'd be curious your thoughts on that, like on what your pet peeves are in the mental health community. Because I I like to ask people that because I'm never really offended because it's stuff that that I don't agree with either. So So one thing that you brought up that I want to touch on really quick is anonymous accounts versus, you know, people like us that are our names and pictures. I know, I know some people, you know, a lot of people like us and some people that are just permanently anonymous because sure. of reasons, you know, people may have valid reasons for staying anonymous. That's right. totally fine. I get it. I, I think that generally people have the intuition to know whether or not this is a person that can actually be trusted. Like, yeah. whether, you know, one person that I know, he's a good friend of mine. He's anonymous, but he's yeah. a school teacher. And so he's protecting other people by being anonymous. Right. Um, an anonymous person that's not to be trusted, not going to name names, but I blocked them this morning. I found an account that talks nonstop about eating raw meat and that includes raw chicken. And Oh no. Yeah. So they're all, all about, um, like raw meat, eating raw chicken mainly and about telling people how the government came up with cooking meat to like make people unhealthy like you're destroying your food and you're like killing the nutrients and it's talking i saw a tweet from it this morning right before i blocked it that was like well you know when you have diarrhea after you eat raw chicken it's just your body's way of flushing out toxins and all bacteria are good bacteria and it's just like what in like how and this account has like nine thousand followers oh yeah 
it's like people believe this shit oh yeah well i mean twitter is the kind of world religions hub and everybody's a priest right it's like choose your god so i'm not surprised that that was so i think i know know what you're talking about and i'm not going to go too far into detail on that either at least on the air maybe i'll do a patreon where i warn people of like the scariest twitter accounts or something you have to come in and be a member like but um joking aside that's it's a good point and i don't listen i don't think that being your true identity online is for everybody I only have a problem with the Anon accounts when they start to show a lot of hypocrisy where it's basically, I mean, I can't believe there's one that was saying like, if you don't have skin in the game and you don't, you're not real online or something, you don't, uh, you're not taking it seriously. And it's like, they're an Anon account. Now maybe that was a joke, but it didn't seem to be played for laughs. And like the, it's like, what are you saying? And, and by, and, and the political accounts too, that are anonymous, that are telling people like go out there and do stuff you first, right? Like I, as a therapist, I have an especially strong sense of revulsion to the easy hypocrisy that can go along with the anonymity, right? It's like everyone, like you're not doing stuff in person. What are you going to do? I mean, it seems like it's kind of a con game in many ways for many accounts, but yes, of course you have to protect yourself. If there's an extenuating reason, I get that. So it's a lot of people don't know this, but it's kind of a marketing strategy. Like it's the dark side of the marketing strategy. Oh, absolutely. Projection. You, you tear down people who are doing things that you're, you're kind of doing. Right. Belittling them. Yeah, and of course. Like, oh, this, this person copied me or this person shouldn't be doing this. It's like this person posts too many platitudes and yeah. then they turn around and tell people to shower. And yeah. it's like, you're, you're, you're a hypocrite and you're just destroying like other people. Oh yeah. Uh, but I do want to get back to the actual question that you asked me a minute oh, ago. So sure. my biggest problem with the mental health community is people that think that everything should be sunshine and rainbows. And Bingo. people that think that we, like that kind of gives positive psychology a bad name, uh-huh. you know, positive or like psychology and, you know, self-help and mental health is a, is about processing your emotions. You know, I talk about meditation and how that helps you increase your emotional control. And then I get some actually people in my replies. It's like, well, aren't emotions good? It's like, yeah, I never said that they weren't. I said, I'm saying that you should control process and harness your emotions. I do my best work when I'm angry about something, when I'm frustrated, like that's just who I am. So when I get pissed off about something, I harness that instead of punching a wall or something like that. So I think that people need to do a better job about accepting that life isn't always happiness. And in fact, it would be boring if it wasn't. Like if everything was perfect all the time, we wouldn't appreciate anything. I think a lot of people forget that because they just they just wanna be happy. They don't really wanna, some people don't really wanna deal with the darker side of reality. But if you don't deal with it, then it's just going to fester and grow. Brilliant. I So much to unpack there. Um, toxic positivity is a thing. Yep. And it's funny because I've seen people talk about how that's such a ridiculous term. And it's not. I mean, and take it from me. Anybody who follows my Twitter knows that I don't post cringe stuff. I don't go down the rabbit hole of calling anything that I don't like 
toxic or abusive. I think that becomes a slippery slope and it becomes one of those, we can guillotine everybody and there's nobody's head left kind of deals where it's like all masculinity is not toxic. Some unequivocally is like we just talked about with the hypocrisy of no emotion Twitter. So yes, I'll call that out absolutely all day. However, um, you know, men having friendships is not toxic. That's and, and needing male, male camaraderie, which, you know, there's the idea of man up and deal with stuff alone. That's very toxic. And people can play into that as a sort of con game to say, okay, well, here's what you need to do to be sufficient on your own. Of course, you know, not talking to anyone. Yeah, that's really healthy. Yeah. But it's really good what you're getting at about the unwillingness to address negative emotion. I think that comes from a few sources. I think we can't, we can't overestimate possibly how much a therapist's personality or training or the, the, the fusion of the two comes into play with their attitude toward negative stuff. So anytime someone's weeping or really displaying negative emotion, if you have empathy as a therapist, you're probably going to want to help them through that and stop that. But you do have to realize that's not always the role right away. You want to dignify that emotion and allow people to work through it. And that can be difficult for someone who wants, who's a fixer. And so there's that element of not, and there's also the just world fallacy, right? Of, well, we like to think that people brought about their own circumstances. And so, well, if you think positive or do something better, that'll fix it. And part of that is we're afraid to look at just how negative, just how things can happen to people. It's very fear inducing to think about because people can get into relationships with, with others who hid their psychopathy or narcissism very well, right? But then we can, there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you have to screen your partners better. Uh, well, there's some pretty, pretty well-contained psychopaths who do a good job of hiding their grandiosity, their egocentrism, et cetera, because they don't have the same flaws or need to be seen as narcissists. And so it's like, well, anyone could potentially fall for that if they don't really scream, but we don't like to think that. We like to think, oh, we'll just be positive in that that won't happen. And that's kind of our own inability, if we haven't worked on it, to sit with negative facts, right? It's like, oh, well, we don't need to gloss over negative stuff. And there's a lot of well-intentioned therapists and helpers out there, I think, who really like to do the live, laugh, love, gloss over approach, which is like applying potpourri to a corpse, essentially. It's like, we, we, we have to do the depth work that isn't easy. That's the whole reason why we're a therapist and not just somebody's friend who's talking to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you actually touched on uh, two different sides of something that came to my mind, which is victim blaming. You know, if you, right. if you go down the, the just world fallacy, then you're essentially blaming the victim. Like, well, oh, yeah. you should have known that your girlfriend, like the girl was abusive, like before you started right. ever going out with her. Right. But then if you try to stay away from, you know, blaming the victim at all, like what, like stay away from any fault of theirs, then you're not actually helping them because it's like you're coddling them basically. So you have to find the middle road where you're dealing with actual reality. Like, okay, maybe you could have done better in this situation. Like here, here, maybe, maybe here are the signs, like, or maybe here's some tests that you could have, but also 
luck is a real concept you know sometimes things just don't work out or sometimes things do work out you know i'm i am who i am because of a combination of the bad and the good luck that i've had and if you just ignore the fact that there's chaos and randomness and luck in the world then you know you're you're gonna you're gonna turn into a law of attraction person where it's like well i'm just gonna want it and wish it and believe it and dream it and i'm gonna win the lottery but if I don't get it, then I didn't work. I didn't dream hard enough for it. It's like, that's, that's not, that's not reality. Yeah, it's not. Um, and people need to be open to what, what is reality. And they need to be willing to look for answers that are a little more complex than, you know, self-loathing or self-aggrandizement. Either of those sell very well on Twitter. Um, I've noticed that Twitter is very much kind of a masochism machine there's a mm -hmm. lot of i don't know if you've noticed the same thing uh probably we've just been talking about it essentially but it, it the the like idea of doing as much hard stuff as you can to yourself and kind of beating yourself up being the way i think it sounds it, it's like again it's a very secular deliverance philosophy of if i do the right penance and i i basically you know give my my pound of flesh then I'm going to earn my way into prosperity. So there's, there's some real, uh, I would say, cognitive distortion at play there. I think a perfect example of that is cold showers. I think cold showers is a microcosm of that because like, oh, every, every wannabe Twitter guru is like, oh, you got to start your day with a cold shower. Like, yeah, you know, cold showers have benefits. So do warm showers. You know, like, yeah, black coffee is good, but sometimes I like cream and sugar in my coffee or I like to go to Starbucks. Like, you know, not everything has to be absolute. I'm going to take the hardest route possible just because I'm a, a manly man with hair on my chest. It's like you're basically just becoming a parody of yourself. And it's, and it's like to people who have some instincts, like have that intuition or like us have studied psychology and can read people like that it's just kind of comical to a point but it's also like you're misleading people and you're act actively harming people so then it's like i mean i'm kind of put in a predicament where it's like do i start calling some of this stuff out like do i start calling people out for misleading like if there's an account with 10,000 100,000 followers is saying that anxiety doesn't exist like I feel like I have a responsibility to start addressing this kind of thing. Oh, that's a loaded question. Yeah. The way I handle stuff is I will often address the idea and, and not yeah. down, you know, not <laughs> dress down the person. Yeah. A, I don't really want to get into a fight with people on Twitter and B, I don't think it's appropriate for my brand, but I, but I mean, there comes a point of accountability, right? Where again, in the therapeutic community, there's a sort of idea that you address uh, unethical behavior, or you have to report it. And so when you report unethical behavior, it's like that's you, you potentially ruined your relationship with someone, but you've potentially saved clients when it comes to other therapists, I'm saying, obviously, but there's, there's not that sort of thing on Twitter. There's not an automatic, I mean, the, the, 
<laughs> there are supposed to be things that, that guard against disinformation. And again, some of it there is, but it's not nuanced enough yet. And to be quite blunt, the degree of censorship it would take would leave the site much more locked down in terms of ideology and inability to speak. So I don't, I mean, I don't know, advocate for that. And that's where self-policing and accountability comes in. But it's very easy. I mean, again, this is why, I mean, if somebody had any real, if, if someone with a face and a name gets on and talks about no anxiety, like that, that doesn't exist. Anxiety is not real. They're probably not in any <laughs> mental health field. And, and of course not. Right. They wouldn't be saying that, but it's like even more so like there, there's a level of just complete disrespect for people's experience there that is only available online when you when there's no kind of community tribal context to hold someone accountable. I mean, that's one thing we really miss when we're all fragmented off in this postmodern landscape is accountability and someone saying, yo, this isn't cool. We're not going to support this until we're not going to support you until this changes. And that we really miss that. Well, you keep bringing up credentials and things like that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who either don't care if someone has the credentials to be speaking about of a certain course. topic of course. or they don't believe in that. And that's unfortunately yeah. been a negative side effect of the pandemic this year, like after it became political over sure. the early summer, where people lost their trust in science. Now, right. I'm not yes. a, a scientism person. I'm also not a scientist, but I see science isn't something to believe in. Like it's not a religion. Science, the scientific method just is. It's like mathematics. It just simply is. It doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> it, just, I was about to say, it doesn't care if you believe in it or not. It simply exists. The yeah. problem is that there's a lot of bad science. So it's like the work that the sugar industry has done and other industries have done that have called bad science. That's the problem. But unfortunately, people who aren't putting much thought into it just to say that all science is bad. And then they say that, oh, well, you know, the bros have it figured out. Like science just keep catching up to the bros and the bro science and the bro fitness and all that stuff. And it's just, it's very exhausting sometimes because eventually people just go to this person with Socrates as their profile picture and a hundred thousand followers. It's like, this person knows what he's talking about. Like, right. If, if he didn't know what he's talking about, why would he have a hundred thousand followers? It's like, that's so many logical fallacies contained in one statement. Yeah, you really nailed it. Um, and I want to hit on that, the, that the, I have nothing but empathy for people who are burned out with experts in the mental health realm. Because if you think about it, you have a doctor, an MD, we'll say, and you know what they're doing, possibly. You know, you, if you have a broken arm, you go to a doctor. Why? Because they're going to be able to send you to get x-rays. They're going to be able to know what kind of fracture you have. They're going to know how long to set it to heal it, the kind of cast you need, the kind of the resources to do that. And you're going to check it up on you when that's done. Or even for any other condition, you have some kind of bacterial or viral infection. You're going to go to a doctor to identify it and treat it. Okay. Bada bang. Now we could get into the finer points of 
what that treatment looks like and how antibiotics aren't always the answer, blah, blah, blah. But the point I'm making isn't that it's there's a quantifiable problem and a quanti quantitative solution. Okay. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to therapy and mental health stuff, let's be totally blunt here. Cause I noticed this too, like is the way my mind works. There's often not an identified problem. And if there is, it's one that's very nebulous, like lack of self-esteem, okay? Or anxiety, okay? What does that mean, okay? Right. What is, and what is the, the treatment? Well, the treatment is do this many affirmations, color in your coloring journal, do this, do that. That takes away from the credence of the field. Now, nothing wrong with coloring. Not, in fact, in journaling, James Pennebaker, the great psychologist, studied for years, decades even, the merits of therapeutic journaling. Mm -hmm. It's real. Studies prove that or support that. We don't really say prove, I guess, in the, the study world, but there's a magnitude of support for that. However, there's better way, there's 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 more effective or less effective ways to, to demonstrate that. And a lot of therapists, their personality types are very open, very artistic, and that's fine. But a lot of what comes out is stuff that does not seem like treatment, does not seem official, seems very subjective and non-scientific. And so that can be a turnoff to anyone who doesn't have a mindset of, oh, I'm going to pick up something that's very cutesy. So, okay. Again, there's nothing wrong with wanting, and we had the other problem in the past, interestingly enough, as a student of psychology yourself, you know that psychoanalysis and behaviorism ruled the mid to late 20th century. First, psych, well, no, the early to mid 20th century, probably we could say, because at psychoanalysis through the 1900, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then behaviorism, very scientific based psychology. And then we had the kind of third wave mindfulness stuff that was undeniably needed. But that has sort of digressed into very nebulous stuff when it didn't start that way. And so people on Twitter are like, like, wow, I don't really think this is effective, but someone telling me there are these five practices that will heal me. There's a sort of quasi expert nature to that that's more appealing. And that, and that gets into hustle marketing Twitter, by the way. And I've observed this, like it gives people something to hold on to. And it's really unfortunate because there's so many therapies like EMDR or DBT that have steps and, and very important elements that people can grab onto, but they don't hear about it as much from therapy Twitter, because I don't, to be quite honest, a lot of therapists are not that technologically savvy. Now that's not all of course, but there's a lack of it. And so a hustler who's technologically savvy can sell their therapeutic wares easier and can come off as an expert or an anti-expert, which hilariously enough is the same thing. Basically as an expert, they're like, I don't trust me. I'm, I'm not your, your doctor. And it's like, but they're, but they're still claiming a sort of expertise. So they wouldn't be able to sell anything. It's funny to notice that. Yeah. So what I would say is that people need to be more focused on fixing the cause and not just symptoms. You know, if you, oh, bingo. if you don't feel, feel good, don't just, like you said, don't just do affirmations. Like, why don't you feel good? You know, you yeah. need to address what the actual problem is instead of just fixing the, the, the symptoms that you have, because, you know, it's like, I used to struggle with alcohol and I had reasons for that. You know, I had depression. I wasn't happy with the way that my life was going, despite the effort that I was putting in. And 
there'd be times where I would stop drinking, like go completely dry for weeks or months at a time, but that didn't actually fix anything because I was only addressing a symptom. I wasn't addressing the actual cause. And an issue is, is that when you have a hustler who doesn't really know all that much about how the brain works, they just know what works for them or they're just putting random words together, then they're just treating symptoms. And so they're not actually really helping anybody. You know, they may help someone feel a little bit better, but they're not actually fixing the underlying problem. You have to go deeper into that. 100%. And then you can get a little conspiratorial, not too much, but you could say that if you're healing symptoms, then you've got to repeat customer, right? Because it keeps feeling good when you take away the symptoms, but they come back and they have to come back to you. The customer has to come back to you when the symptoms return. Very interesting. You know, I won't delve too much into that, but it's a good note. And I think the, again, there's a, a problem in messaging, a massive one in my field, because we're an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Most therapists, I think, are extremely well-intentioned. Now, I say well-intentioned because I think a lot of hurt gets thrown at clients that is maybe, I'm going to hope, unintentional. So if clients feel unheard, some, sometimes that's unintentional on the therapist's part. I'm not going to defend it that much, though, because I have heard stories where clearly anyone with any degree of emotional intelligence, regard, you know, much less a therapist, wouldn't say the kind of stuff I've clients have told me they've heard from a therapist. So I'm not going to go down that road on devil's advocate, but the messaging around trauma healing is very sometimes unprofessional, very scary to people who, I mean, what does trauma do? Well, it often creates an avoidance of, it's like a scab and you, that never really heals and you avoid, you cover it, you protect it, you keep a bandaid on it. And the therapy message is like, Oh, well, be vulnerable to everyone and bravely live your vulnerability. Well, so I just tweeted about this the other day. That doesn't always work. There's not always someone right there in your immediate surroundings, a well-intentioned stranger, right? There's plenty of predators. And I think it's completely, completely disingenuous to pretend otherwise, that there aren't people who will take advantage of weakness. And so I think with trauma healing, it can be scary to people, this idea of doing it all at once or that you have to open up immediately. And again, the messaging there is not on point because there are therapies that allow you to incrementally go into it and incrementally look at your root problem. That's why I'm going on this tangent is the root issue with trauma. The symptoms come out as avoidance, anxiety, poor esteem, um, distractibility, actually, because ADHD symptoms it can be so anxiety can mimic ADHD as many people may be aware um, or might not. Hopefully somebody learned something new with that, but that, 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 that might be where their symptoms are coming from. It's like, you have to address that, but it can be less scary than what therapists are putting out there. And so I, again, this echo chamber of well-intentioned therapists where like, we're like you wouldn't be able to understand why someone wouldn't trust right away to go into their, experiences, why they'd be guarded. It's like, well, as a therapist, you probably are assuming that people haven't taken advantage of them or that they don't, they don't trust you yet. Like, you know, you're a good therapist if you're out there, you are like expecting people to open up, but they don't know that. And so the messaging needs to change and be less cringeworthy and be less like 
either unprofessional or too frightening about how it feels to address your trauma? I think there's a lot of responsibility that people need to take on both sides. So people who have the awareness and know that they need help, they need to take the responsibility of making, like doing their due diligence and making sure that the people that they're going to for help are qualified people who are experienced and people that have like that can actually help you like have that track record and then at the same time you know you mentioned people who have good intentions well it's great to have good intentions but if you don't have good education or a good track record it doesn't mean anything you're still hurting so the people that have good intentions they need to take the responsibility to actually know what they're talking about like when i go to post one of my psychology facts of the day i double check to make sure that it's actually a fact so that i don't you know hurt someone or you know something that only hurt me like get called out like now that's actually bullshit because i look stupid and then that hurts people's faith in in me so i i take the responsibility of making sure that i know what i'm talking about as much as humanly possible before i share anything and if the other creators on twitter or youtube or whatever other therapists you know off of social media took the time took the responsibility to make sure that they actually know what they're talking about and ha- and can actually help people, the world would be so much, it would be so such a better place. But, you know, especially with social media, we're all in like, ah, I got to get out my content for that sweet dopamine and I got to get followers so I can get money and all this stuff. It's like no one takes the time to do it. No, I, I completely agree with that. And someone that I really would shout out who is doing a pretty good job is Donald Robertson, the guy who does uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. So he is a, is a trained therapist, and he, he was an analyst. He, he discovered a kind of annoyance with psychoanalysis, went into stoicism, and then wrote about it. And I mean, it's, it's very – and so I interviewed him, and we talked about stoicism and how it doesn't always – like it doesn't – say that you can't, that all emotions are negative or even that you can control emotions, you know, Im- impulses that happen. Like if you get scared or something that immediately happens are like proto emotions in that, in that framework. And, and of course you react to them, but your, your goal is to stop and that takes time. But I, I love what you're saying about that. And again, I think it's really weird. I think sometimes therapists and people who do it all day for a living take to Twitter to de-stress and will just say stuff on there and don't take it as seriously as they would their job. And so I think there's a few different things there at play. Um, you do need to verify, uh-oh, what happened? There? Uh, froze up. You do need to verify that what you're saying is accurate. And that only takes a few moments, really. So I, it's tough to, it's tough to circumvent that or to, to give any sort of justification for it. I mean, you got to do your due diligence. So what, if you want to respond to that, you can, but I also wanted to ask um, at some point, like when you decided to take your experience with self-help and then you do it for others, like become a coach, become a psychology speaker, essentially. So because my content is based on, psychology and neuroscience, you know, actual science. I'm, that makes me very confident that 
my content is accurate and is helpful. Oh yeah. You know, that's why I do what I do. That's why I press about but scientific X. So, you know, I had conviction that my content was going to be more effective and more helpful for people than some 60 second video that Gary Vee has some intern create about okay. hustling uh. so long. So that was one, one of the inspirations for that or one reason for that. And then, you know, over, over time as I experimented with different things and different niches and specialties on Twitter with my business, I eventually realized that the people who I can help best are people like me. And so I'm someone that had to like, I got overcame a lot of problems with weight, alcoholism, video game addiction, caffeine addiction, anxiety, and, th and stuff like that. And I'm also like, I created a business. So why not target other people who are starting businesses of their own or people that have established businesses? Right. And so that's really helped me narrow down like, okay, what does Joey Dowdy want to do? And that's where I've gotten to today, where I coach entrepreneurs with methods that are based on science. It took a it took me a year to get there, but now that I'm finally there, I'm really happy with the direction that I've taken. I mean, compared to it taking a year to taking longer. It, I mean, it's, it's good that you're, that you got that direction quickly. I think it all comes down to how serious someone knows their target demographic, their mission and how their passion fuels that. Right. So it's like that, that what model of looking at passion and will and, and an Aristotelian model, like but from Aristotle. So I think in, in its very equal parts, planning and an actual emotional drive, because one without the other becomes either aimless or cold and sort of robotic. And people can sense either one of those. Yeah, for sure. Something that a lot of new creators don't know, and something I didn't know when I first started off, is that the more niche down that you are, the better things will go for you. Now you may grow slower, but the community that you have will be closer to you. So, you know, I was talking to uh, someone yesterday about this where, you know, they were, they were afraid to go into something that was somewhat specific. And I told them, you know, the more specific that you get, the better for you and your community. So, you know, with me, the reason why, one of the reasons why I'm so specific is so that I feel confident that I know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm not a psychologist and a therapist or a coach for every person that would ever want help. You know, there are some people that come to me and I'm like, I'm sorry, like, I don't, that's not something that I'm knowledgeable about. I don't specialize in that. And going off that point, something that I can't believe I haven't gotten to yet, we need to normalize saying, I don't know. We need to normalize not talking about something that you don't actually know anything about. Like you don't have to have an opinion about anything or about everything. And I really wish that more people would admit when they're like, I don't know, and defer to someone else rather than pretending that they know it all. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty obvious when you're talking out of your ass. Oh yeah. I think that's a supremely important. Um, 
And we can't, I mean, that can't be overstated. I think it's, again, ego getting in the way of authenticity. So there's like the fear that saying you don't know something will come across as incompetent. Well, whether or not you say it or not, people will figure it out. So that's the key element we got to be aware of is like, everyone's not going to be a trauma expert. Everyone's not going to be a CBT expert. You have to, if that, whatever you want, there's as many different therapists as there are people with, with the degree, like it's there, it's not a monolithic profession where everyone comes across the same way. Nothing is. There's always variation based on personality and post-grad training. And for anybody out there, I think they need to realize if you, if you had a bad experience with a therapist, that was that therapist and it was that particular model. So there's lots of people who need a one certain model and they've had a therapist who had another, let's say people who want more of a tough love and they got more of a fluffy um, kind of child safety proof therapist, someone who every like, you know, doilies and, rainbows and stuff. And then there's nothing wrong with that when that's what you need. And then there's the opposite. You get people who maybe have been through a lot and had nothing but a lot of tough talk and tough love. And then they get a therapist who's the same way and says, well, what did you do to, to fix it? What did you like? And constantly throws back in that person's face, what they need to do. And so either way there, and you know, ideally a therapist titrates their um, clinical presentation based on what the client needs. I will say that like, you should not and it's not a one size fits all thing. Sometimes you have to talk about accountability. Sometimes you have to talk about boundaries and how someone deserves a break. Um, and, and knowing when to do that is the mark of a good therapist, analyst, healer, whatever you want to say, just a bit social, just emotional intelligence, which that's a phrase that's been overused to death. Um, you know, emotional intelligence is a complex variable and it's not always a positive thing. It's how you use it. That makes the difference. It's not like a it's not an altruism meter. People get that wrong and they get it wrong because they read too many articles that are clickbait about like, you may do this if you have low so emotional intelligence. Like, of course, you're going to think, oh, well, let me look at this. It's usually wrong. And, and I mean, that, that idea, it's a lot like ego strength, like what you talk about with your willpower video, where there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And it'd be interesting with the whole replicability crisis in psychology of hand-picked, cherry-picked studies being kind of the linchpin of some of our ideas, going back and exploring those and saying, oh, maybe this wasn't right. Maybe this was something that was a kind of hand-picked result that was picked because it supports an overarching dogma. Yeah. So for those who don't know about my YouTube channel, as of right now in December 2020, my by far my most popular video is a rather negative video, basically picking apart the ego depletion theory. And it's not so much me picking apart the theory, it's me ranting a little bit about how it got popularized. So I've, I did the research and like looked at the meta-analyses and stuff like that and found out that this concept of ego depletion and willpower depletion was just bad science. Essentially, Roy Baumeister, the researcher, had something in mind, and he did experiments and found just enough of a correlation that, that like validated, validated his hypothesis and got together with a journalist and wrote a book about it. Well, that book became a bestseller, 
And now we have people that think that if you don't have donuts in the morning, then you're not going to have as much willpower later in the day. And it's like, eh, that, that just didn't get enough, like, rigorous science. Or, like, there wasn't enough of the uh, scientific method used for the whole ego depletion thing, which is really unfortunate. So it's like, you know, even if we go back and we, you know, people have been doing meta-analyses, like Carol Dweck did one thing. Um, first off, with Carol Dweck, who wrote the book Mindset that should be required reading for basically anybody, uh, she, did a, she did a study where people, some of her subjects believed in ego depletion and some of her subjects didn't. Well, the subjects that believed in it showed signs of it and the subjects that didn't believe in it didn't. So to get back to what you were just saying about, you know, going back and looking at some of these things and trying to replicate them, unfortunately, even if we disprove them, it's going to take a long time to actually disprove them in the public eye. Bingo. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, metaphors matter. What people expose themselves to on a mimetic level, this gets into memes and i don't mean the funny pictures i mean ideas that are viral and spread and so that's part of why we got a lot of bullshit therapy now is because it sounds good and it it packages well and the media is the message as marshall McLuhan would say uh the way we absorb stuff is often as important as what we're absorbing and so um the sort of packaging of something being very comforting like a security blanket is what kind of propagates the live laugh love therapy and Mm -hmm. so the idea of something sounding very scientific and making sense like we imagine like when we work out our muscles fatigue and then we give it a break and we go back and it's stronger okay so people so the mind is very nebulous and so what we do is we create metaphors that explain it and that's what we've been doing for the entirety of human development as long as we've known that the mind is in is in the brain well and spirituality like i'm christian i believe in in the soul but we all we know that the brain really factors in to the mind right and we know that that's a huge thing that relies on bodily processes and so we have these ideas with our metaphors seep they they overlap and so ego strength sounds like a really good model sounds very effective very, very descriptive. And when people are exposed to it, it sticks and they start to misuse it. They start to think, well, or even at this point, using it at all can be detrimental. Like if you think that you're going to need a break, if you think you can't do it, you can't. I mean, that's essentially what that those ego depletion replication studies you're talking about, the willpower replication stuff has proven is what you think you can do, you can do what you think you can't do, you can't do. And that sounds like such pop psychology, but it's not. And in fact, the, the real pop psychology is pat little prompt sort of very self-contained ways of viewing things that mimetically are pleasing and make, make sense and give you kind of a justification for not doing anything or for viewing weaknesses as sort of inherent in something you can't change. So it's very hazardous right. what people have imbibed. Like I think you, you the whole list of, distortions that are just commonplace like the idea that venting and dwelling on something will fix it wrong not helpful but you know it's something and you can be very you can look at it malevolently and say well you know as a therapist your goal is to make yourself is to put yourself out of a job that's that's 
bar none, you're supposed to make the client independent. However, if you're not good at getting a lot of clients and you have a few that you need to keep, you're, even unconsciously, your goal may shift to keeping them. It may shift to customer retention, which is antithetical to good therapy. They're completely you know, uh, inversely related. So you, you, if you're trying to keep people, you're not going to tell them, well, you can outgrow this and you don't need to vent all the time and you can use solutions and you can vent as much as you need to to feel heard, but then let's move towards solutions. It's like, oh no, but them coming back every week has become familiar. And you may even like this person as a friend. And that's very hazardous to their health. You need to be working on getting them out of your office. Yeah, that that gets back to what I was saying before, you know, the responsibility of the content creator or the therapist in this case is to make sure that right. you're actually doing things that are helping people and not getting them stuck. I mean, I think that I'm sure Tony Robbins has done a lot of good, but I think the people have gotten certain people have gotten addicted to going to Tony Robbins type events and like feeling really good and, and getting all hyped up and everything, getting very motivated. But then they go back home and they're, they're not really changed. You know, they don't really feel any better, feel any different. So they go to another one. And, you know, the, the wave of gurus that came after Tony Robbins, I think there was a lot of them that were very predatory and, you know, basically created a job for themselves where, you know, maybe I'll write a book or maybe I'll create a course or coaching or something like that and keep coming back for more and like give, like give you just enough of a drip of information and motivation so that you feel good for a little bit, but I'm not, not actually setting up systems and routines and habits where you're going to be independent and I'm going to put myself out of a job basically. And it's very predatory. And unfortunately, that gives self-help, self-improvement, positive psychology, therapy. It gives all that a bad name, like the bad apples spoil the bunch. Right. Then you have a lot of people who don't believe in psychology. They don't believe in therapy. And they would rather listen to the, the stoic guy on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Boy, lots to unpack there. I keep saying that, but that's because this is a really targeted, good conversation about this stuff. I would say a big issue is the well intent again, well intentioned, maybe. I mean, I'm going to try to assume the best. Uh, experience yeah. it, peak experiences is what you're talking about. So when someone has a, an experience where they walk on coals or they have a foundational revelation about themselves, that's only as good as you mobilize it. It's only as effective as what you do with that knowledge. Inside itself, it's not curative, not always. Now, if you realize something like your abuse explains why you have commitment issues or certain responses to things, that can be enough that you then, of like, like you then go against that and say, I'm safe now, I'm okay, I can do this. So insight can be like 90% of a solution, but it's never the whole picture because you have to implement it. And so if people gain a lot of insight at Tony Robbins events, but then they go back home, you get on the plane, they, they go back to their family, they, they enmesh, they, they go back to these same enmeshments of their role in the family, whatever it is, like if they're the peacemaker and they don't ever stand up for themselves, like you've had this experience but you're not implementing it. You're not drawing your own boundaries because you don't have someone there 
helping to keep that accountability and say, your needs matter. How can you show that with your family this week? How can you continue demonstrating that when it's not easy and when you're going against the grain of a long-standing family dynamic, just to keep using that example, that's not something you're going to get at a weekend conference. You're never going to get that because it's something you need you as the consumer, as the client, as the patient, whatever you want to say, has to continue implementing. And I think that's why a lot of Twitter accounts and Twitter gurus have an edge because they're there as reminders and people keep looking at Twitter. They can't keep going back to those $3,000 Tony Robbins events, essentially. So that you bring up a good point. I, it all has to do with accountability, familiarity, implementability, you know, implementation. And that's something that a lot of therapists haven't figured out yet. And, and well, if you go weekly or biweekly to a therapist and they still don't keep bringing up what you're working on and it isn't a structured meeting, you're not going to be able to get that, even though you have the accountability and weekly element there. Yeah. So you make an excellent point. And to summarize what you just said, it doesn't matter if you learn how to do it or even if you believe that you can do it. If you don't do it, nothing's going to get done. You know, I use the metaphor, I heard it from someone else, to be honest, but, you know, about people that are addicted to learning. Like you can learn all the recipes that you want. If you never cook, you're going to starve. Right. Basically the way it works. So, yeah, I mean, that, and, and to bring up the point about the coach, you know, something that I've noticed with the clients that I've worked with is people generally know what they should be doing. Like they know the good habits that they should have. They understand that their fears and their insecurities and things like that aren't reality. You know, they know what they want to do with their business to take it to the next level and earn more money, but they really just need that accountability. And sometimes they also just kind of need someone to talk to about some things. You know, I've noticed that a lot of people don't really have anybody in their lives that they feel comfortable talking to about a lot of things. I'm fortunate that, that I have an extremely good relationship with my mom at 30 years old, and I talk to her almost every day. And so I'm used to talking to her about things that are bothering me, even if she has no context whatsoever. I talk yeah. things out. That's how I process things. And just the act of talking to a coach or talking to a therapist can be extremely therapeutic and help that person figure out like what they need to do. Even if the person is just a sounding board, like I could talk to my cat for half an hour and feel better because when you're communicating something, your brain like synthesizes it in a new way. It uses new neural connections and you think about it differently. And then all of a sudden, it could be during the conversation. It could be while you're in the shower a day later, but suddenly it clicks and you have a new insight. I use the, not a very good metaphor to be honest, but it's kind of like mashing a couple of Legos together. Like you right. keep beating them together. And then eventually when you do it right, like they're suddenly going to click together and then you have a new thing. Absolutely. No, I love that. So one of your, we know that one of your favorite books is Atomic Habits. You've tweeted about it. What is another self-help book that you really like or a recent one what, that you read that really impressed you? So let me see. Atomic Habits is by far my favorite. Mindset by Carol Dweck is, incre is incredible. It's about the, the growth mindset. What was it called? Uh, everybody should have a mindset okay. by yeah. Carol Dweck. Yep. There was that one. Kind of, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker is kind of a self-improvement book that'll scare you into sleeping better. 
his research isn't perfect. He went a little bit overboard so that he could fearmonger a little bit, but it's still a really good book. I highly recommend that one. I would also recommend to anybody who's interested in psychology at all, an excellent intro is 50 Psychology Classics by Tom Butler Bowden. And if you haven't heard of that one, I can send you the link so that you can put it in the description of the, of the video. I guess this is going on YouTube. So yeah, I can send you a link to that on Amazon. Highly, there's also an audiobook version of it I just found out. But basically, 50 Psychology Classics gives you a little bit of taste of some of the most influential psychology work done in the past you know, 100 years or more. Like it has Freud, it has Seligman. It has all these different people. And so that will actually inspire some curiosity. You know, maybe people are interested in Carl Jung's work. Maybe they're interested in Seligman's work and positive psychology. But I highly recommend that. See, I grew up watching Bill Nye. And I know Bill Nye has gotten a little bit bitter. And to be perfectly fair to Bill Nye, if you've been working in science for most of your life and the world's still the way that it is, I can understand why you'd be a little bit bitter. But uh, Bill Nye inspired curiosity in me. And that's what I hope to achieve with what I, the work that I do and make people think that, oh man, the brain's really cool. I want to learn more about it. So yeah, that's, that's what I, why I do what I do. And if you read books like Atomic Habits, Mindset, and 50 Psychology Classics, you'll definitely get a better understanding of how your mind works. And maybe even, maybe even start doing what I do, like helping share that that knowledge with others. When you bring that up, I, I, uh, I have that book too. So I definitely know what you're talking about. So that's, yeah. yeah, I think anybody who really loves the mind, especially therapists need to get it. Grad school often isn't as much a preparation as people would expect. A lot of my best training happened post-grad. So I got trained in EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, a therapy that really helps trauma survivors by essentially reintegrating the traumatic event that keeps coming up as a visceral memory or images as an episodic memory, as something that they can say, oh, that sucked. It's not good, but it's over. So a lot of my understanding comes from that. And that was kind of paywall or locked behind having a grad degree because you, you have to have a master's to get trained in that or be, I mean, as a therapist or have be a nurse or a doctor. And so there's still some of those models where it's like there's, and that's why people on Twitter say, don't go to college, don't do this, don't do that. That's if you want to go into something like coding or building something very specific or computer stuff, maybe that works. I still wouldn't completely, because I don't know what I'm talking about with that essentially. I know there's like C++ and different coding language, different programming language certifications, right? You can kind of go straight to that. But right. for a lot of healing professions, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, neurologist, any, anything involving that, you're going to need higher education. And you ask yourself, would you want a doctor who didn't have it? That's always the best answer. Or, you know, the best, the best way to determine that is, would you feel comfortable doing maybe what you're advocating for? Like, would you be comfortable if someone was self-taught? Now, of course, someone could do that. They could memorize medical stuff and they could memorize uh, medication side effects and, and, and interactions and all that stuff. Of course they could. But anyway, what I'm droning on about is like a lot of the best psychology knowledge is really something people go into kind of after the fact or 
as a way, like you, you have to be, you have to be hungry for it. And so therapists have to really do some of that afterward. And people like you, who the only stake in it is you want to operationalize it and help it. That can actually be a huge asset because you're it's, it's depth over breadth, right? So what you hit, what you hit about the niches was very valuable in grad school. There's a lot of scattershot stuff. Like here's your professional orientation, which is basically ethics and a little bit of marketing, not much that isn't really taught in school at all by the way, to therapists. So that's why so many of them yeah. have amazing techniques and things that they're not marketing. They don't know how, and they're not, some of them are not inclined to learn that because they have this fallacy that, well, if I'm good, people will find me. I don't need SEO. I don't need optimized tweets. I don't need anything optimized. Like, well, that's not true. But like being curious about the field is the hallmark of a good therapist, a good coach yeah. at all. So your recommendation of books, it's like always stuff that gets deeper. Always, even if it's a sampling of those 50 classics, it's something that really gets into the why of the mind and not just, oh, this sounds nice. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing that you bring up, you know, when you're self-taught, even if you have good intentions, you need to be very careful what kind of promises that you're making and how you're positioning yourself. You know, I, I have a bachelor's in computer engineering. I didn't go to school for psychology. So I'm very careful about not acting like a therapist or acting like a psychiatrist or things like sure. that because I'm not qualified and I'm not educated in those areas of psychology. So I'm very upfront and transparent about my history and my education and what I can do for people. And then over time, as you get a track record, you know, social proof and testimonials of people that you've helped, then you can use that and show that as like, hey, I did this for these people. I can do it for other people. But if you think that you're just going to read a couple books and suddenly be able to fix everybody's problems, you're going to wind up hurting a lot of people and probably getting sued. So you need to be very, very careful of what, how you position yourself and what you promise other people. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. That's absolutely accurate. Um, for everybody involved, I mean, therapists, a lot of them, unless they're a psychiatrist or unless they're a psychologist in certain states, you can't prescribe meds. So yeah. you have to be careful with giving any medical advice at all when it comes to medication. You shouldn't give any. Um, I even really stay away from telling people to take supplements. I say, go investigate vitamin D, vitamin C, things like that with your doctor. You know, go talk about this, get checked for deficiency. Something you hit on early on that I'm, I'm circling back to here. It's absolutely essential. If you're having depression, anxiety, mental health symptoms, that you realize the, the mind body divide is completely fictitious. That was a hugely detrimental introduction that Rene Descartes cursed essentially upon the psychology world. And now it's lifted. I mean, he was a great thinker. He invented a lot of algebraic stuff and mathematics, but the idea of, of the mind and body being divided is very unhelpful because your mood is impacted by your health. When you spoke about, the importance of hormones and how low T was coming into the equation when you mm -hmm. have issues with weight. I think all men who are in women, of course, anyone, but particularly men who are struggling with sluggishness or with mood stuff need to get a good physical examination. I say that because men are notorious about not going to doctors. So it's very, it's essential to do that. Um, cause the mind and the body are very integrated and you might have, a, a, it's amazing how many people in the Western world are vitamin D deficient as well. So yep. just wanted to hit on that. 
Yeah, vitamin D deficiency is extremely common, as you pointed out. It's especially with the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns. And, you know, here in the US, at least around the time that we're having this conversation, it's getting dark and gray and nasty out. So that's going to cause the the seasonal affective disorder. And, you know, it has a lot of mental, mental health effects. I think that the lockdown overall is going to cause a mental health epidemic unlike the which we've never ever seen that's something i've been doing a lot a lot of reading about lately yeah absolutely um i think you're dead on with that so as we yeah what what anything in particular you want to point to with that anything you've read any any sources or anything that you find really pertinent i'll give that a minute here yeah so a big thing is going to be substance abuse and i'll Uh count food in there as well but you know uh drugs alcohol just coping mechanisms really because with all the discomfort and the unknowns and uncertainty people are wanting to cope and they're staying inside working from home maybe drinking while they're working that kind of thing but it's also going to uh lower eq it's going to lower emotional intelligence because we're not having as much interaction with people and so it's going to bring up it's going to worsen some problems that we already have but it's also going to reduce our ability to really interact with people and of course, you know, you're, you're also going to see that with the kids and the, the college students that are doing schooling from home, you know, they're not getting that valuable social time and that's going to hurt them in the long run. I hear you. I definitely think that we need to be authentic about this. One big thing that annoys me is a lot of this. I mean, we've, we, we've heard so much about how mental health matters from people and now we're hearing potentially from the same people, maybe not, that to even talk authentically about the effects of isolation is to say, we don't care about science or health, or we don't care about quarantine, we don't care about safety, which, I mean, we have to talk about health in all aspects. Yes, we need to ensure that we don't infect others, and we need to take proper precautions. And to think that somehow spending Christmas alone, but thinking about family is the same as being with them is completely inauthentic and completely Mm -hmm. the same kind of lie that you have shoved down your throat about anything else marketing related that just isn't, it sounds good, but it isn't. We know that facial, it's like face-to-face contact and, you know, calibrating people's expressions, being, having an interpersonal element is essential. So if you can do that over Zoom, fine. I'm not saying to go out and infect people with COVID and to be irresponsible, wear a mask, do what's necessary. But the way that people are essentially, it, this all or nothing, again, it comes back to all or nothing thinking and that cognitive distortion, that to say we need to help people with depression is the same as saying we want to kill the elderly. Completely, in, completely inappropriate, not true. We have mm-hmm. to be able to talk about all of this. And I think we're, that people are afraid to discuss it because there's a lack of nuance and there you, you have to be naughty. You have to say, look, th- it's not about shaking hands and getting in close proximity with people and getting very, you know, courting disaster. It's about finding ways to be safe while also getting social needs met, especially for extroverts and people who use socialization to get out of their own negative cognitive frameworks. It's essential to keep that going for mental health reasons and to avoid substance use and isolation. Well, the thing about that is, in this case and many other cases, nuance requires extra thought and time. Yes. 
Yes. And many are unwilling to take that extra time and put in that extra thought. So we wind up with extremist views just all across the board. Yeah, absolutely. It's the echo chamber effect. It's the confirmation bias. It's getting Twitter's really good for confirmation bias if you're not intentional about it. Because you can get you because the algorithm sorts you and says who, who to follow, right? And, and it's usually people that are like the account you just followed or that's within your wheelhouse of kind of cognitive distortion, cognitive kind of, um, we would say predilection or biases. So you get like the same, the same community, you get a community recommended to you and you have to go against that if you want to really get the full picture sometimes. So I wanted to ask you here as we wrap up, if there's anything you want to plug, if there's anything you want to leave the audience with, I want to give you full reign to do that. Cool. So the thing that I always like to wrap up my appearances on podcasts or discussion with is, so I like to talk about the locus of control and right. for those who don't know, the locus of control is the extent that you believe that you are in control of your life and how it turns out. Right. It can be external or internal. If it's external, then you believe that life happens to you and that you like you don't have any control if it's internal then you believe that you control the way that your life has gone if you read my life story then you can tell that i'm somebody who developed an internal locus of control and i took command of the way that my life has turned out so the message that i always want to spread whenever possible is think about how you're going through life whether you're the passenger or the driver and do the best that you can to take take control, take responsibility for your life and take control. If you re reject responsibility for things that are happening to you and what you're doing, you're rejecting control of those events and those outcomes. So that's the big thing that I want to leave the listener, the viewer with is, you know, you, you probably have a lot more power over your present and your future than you think that you do so take some time to think about that and with that awareness you'll be better able to create the life and the person that you want all right i think that's a great place to wrap it up thank you joey thank you. great great discussion